0: gentlemen for that. Jacob is Zach's former college roommate, and we all know Grant. (laughs) School must be done. He's passing through. I'm trying to get him to move here when he's done with school, but we'll have to work out the details of that. (laughs) Take your Bibles tonight and turn with me to Acts chapter number 1. studied quite a few different philosophies that we have around here at the church on some Sunday nights this year. A couple more to go before we kind of round out philosophically who we are. Uh, I've intended to do that this year because we are growing, and part of growth means the people that come, especially on Sunday nights, who are able to watch and know who we are and what they are becoming together in Christ here at the church. And so uh, tonight, We continue in our series and we look at our philosophy of evangelism Now evangelism is a broad picture uh, as we'll see tonight But I want to look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 because this is where philosophically this is drawn from And then later we'll look at our commissioning in Matthew chapter 28 in just a few moments The Bible says there, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you And ye shall be witnesses unto me Now who is speaking here? Christ is speaking Jesus Christ is speaking and he is saying to them you will receive power enabling after the Holy Ghost comes upon you and what is that enabling for and that is to be a witness unto whom him Christ the son of God both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth let's open in a word of prayer and we'll jump right into our philosophy of evangelism. This evening. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to study who we are and what we ought to be about. Help us to understand our purpose does not change. We as a church exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ who love you, love others, and share the gospel. I pray that you would help us to be purposeful, intentional in doing that. This is what we will study tonight. This is who we are. Bless, I pray, in this hour in Jesus' name. God has commissioned us to be witnesses. What does it mean to be commissioned? All of our military personnel in here can tell you what it means to be commissioned. What does it mean to be commissioned? Maybe they can
1: We got all grunts in here, all enlisted in here.
0: What does it mean to be commissioned as an officer? All right, it means you're an officer. It means you've been given a task or an authority. What did you say, Keith? Called up or assigned, exactly. Uh, so a commission, broadly, and we do have a bunch of grunts. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing, by the way. My dad just slipped out. He was a reserve colonel, a lieutenant colonel. I could have asked him, but he slipped out just in the nick of time, so I couldn't get what his answer was on a commissioned officer. Here's what it means to be commissioned, or what a commission is. As a noun, it is an instruction, a command, or a duty that is given to a person or group of people. So in other words, it is an instruction— It is the way of doing business. It is what is expected of us. It's our responsibility or duty. As a verb, it carries the same meaning, but it's an action. It is an order or authorization to do or produce something. So we see or understand what Christ is here giving to the apostles. Uh, Ryrie in his notes and others say that this is the apostolic commission. Well, The commissioning of the church is given at the end of all four Gospels and the beginning of the book of Acts. So five times you will find a derivative of this commission to evangelize the world or to witness for Jesus Christ, to witness of Christ to the world. What then is our commission expressly? We'll take your Bibles and turn back, if you will, to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew, the gospel written to present Christ as the king, finishes with the kingly command to go and make disciples also. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse number 18, the Bible says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power. That word power here is the word authority. It's a different word in the original language than the word power in Acts 1-8. That word in Acts 1-8 is the idea of dunamis power. This word here is exousia power. It is authoritative power. He says, all authority, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Where did Jesus Christ get this authority, by the way? From his father, but from his action. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. Only he then can give this order because the power is on earth and in heaven because he has been, he's lived perfectly, sinlessly died completely, and he rose victoriously. Because of that, all authority has been ceded to him in these matters, he says, What does he then tell us to do? Go. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. We then are commissioned as a church body To accomplish the work of evangelization until the Lord returns. And most of you look at me like that's a mystery. That's our commissioning. When someone asks what we're supposed to be about at the church, that is at the top of the list. Philosophically, then, this is an important ministry. You say, why did you leave with this one? Well, because we have to understand the superstructure of ministry and leadership and all of the things that involve discipleship that get us through to fellowship, participation, as we looked at last week, that bring us to the idea of this is the work we do together. This is what we're to be about. We are commissioned to this task. The authority is given to us and the ability is given to us. We've been commissioned to this. It carries a promise of his presence, this commissioning in Matthew 28. As we engage in that work, it brings in not just the promise of his presence, it brings the promise of his power in enabling and authority to do that work. So we can divide then our commissioned work then into three realms, and we begin this evening with the local evangelism. I'm not going to preach just on local evangelism, just on the regional evangelism, and just on the global evangelism, We're going to deal with all of it because we're trying to understand, specifically tonight, our philosophy on evangelism. And evangelism's a big basket. It's a big thing to contain. It's got a lot of moving parts to it. There's things that we are to do here in our Jerusalem. There are things that we are to be engaged in in our Judea. That is broadly our region. And then there are things that we are to be doing to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's why Acts 1-8 is really the best template for our philosophy. It's the verse. It's the cornerstone or the keystone. You will now go back with me to Acts chapter number 3. We'll do a lot of bouncing here in the book of Acts because it is our manual for a church of how we operate. In Acts chapter number 3, we read a wonderful story that develops after the day of Pentecost and they are breaking bread and having fellowship one with another that we studied last week at the end of chapter 2. We get to chapter number 3. The Bible says in verse 1, now Peter and John... Went together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms of them that enter into the temple. Here is a beggarly man who needs assistance. Listen, Jesus says, the poor you will have with you always. He is not shaming the poor. He's just saying to us, this is going to be a constant in mankind. What we find then is Peter and John, on their way to worship God, but also on their way to do the work of witnessing for God, see this man. The Bible says in verse number 3, this is, I think, the key to local evangelism. Seeing people. Seeing people on their way to hell. The problem that most of us run into is that we don't see people ...on their way to hell. We just see people. Sometimes we see them as problems. Sometimes we see them as opportunities. Sometimes we see them as things to exploit. But we don't actually see them in their actual plight, which is bound for hell. The Bible says, "When "...who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms." And Peter, it says, "...fastening his eyes." He saw them, he, they saw him with John, and said, "...look on us." In other words, listen, pay attention... To what we have to offer. Now I can imagine this poor beggar was probably saying what at this point. Yeah, they got something good for me. Most people walk right by and don't give me the time of day. These two cats have stopped and looked squarely at me. This is going to be a royal payday. This is going to be good. Well we keep reading. The Bible says in verse 5, He gave heed unto them expecting to receive something of them. You would too if you were a beggar your whole life. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none. Oh no! What now? The beggar could have immediately shut him off and turned him, you know, tuned him out. Notice what Peter says. But such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew. That it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them into the porch that is called Solomon's Greatly Wondering. Here's the point. They had nothing of this material world to give him, but they had everything of the spiritual realm to offer him. So the impetus of our local evangelization always comes down to not what we have materially, but what we have spiritually to offer to others. Essentially, Peter and John are doing the work of evangelizing and say, I've got nothing temporal to give you, but I have eternal riches, as the hymn writer said, better far than gold that I can offer to you. That's Jesus Christ. I learned two things from this then in a philosophical sense for us. Number one, there is an individual responsibility to evangelize. You are responsible for sharing the gospel. Period. Full stop. No debate. You can disagree with me, but you're disagreeing with this book. You have an individual responsibility to witness. We just read that Jesus said to those 12 that were gathered, the 11 that were gathered and the other disciples that were likely gathered there, and he said to them, ye shall be, a command, witnesses unto me, or of my life and my good news. In other words, we can then say you are responsible for sharing your faith. A serious reader of the New Testament cannot escape that fact. The fact that our faith freely given to us is to be freely shared with all and who we come in contact with every single day. So I ask you philosophically, how are you doing so far on the philosophy of evangelism? Do you share your faith? Well, I'm clumsy at it. You know, nowhere does it say how skilled or how clumsy God cares you are. He just cares that you share your faith. Amen. That's it. You are a witness, by the way. Even if you're bad at sharing your faith and bad living your faith, you're still a witness. Which is not a very good one. I find letter B, then, that there is a corporate opportunity. This is a function of the church. While there is an individual responsibility, there is a corporate opportunity that we must seize upon. Now, this first point is going to be very short when compared to especially the middle and last one, which we'll spend a little bit more time on tonight. But the corporate opportunities around here at Bluegrass are essentially threefold. right? Most people think that coming to the morning worship hour and inviting people to that is the opportunity I speak of. and that's not true. Coming to the morning worship is always first and foremost about the believers in Jesus Christ gathering to worship. Right. We never look at our Sunday morning service as an evangelistic tool. Now, we preach the gospel. So people are going to come in and they're going to hear the gospel, but that's not the main function of gathering to worship just to get other people saved. If it is, why else would you come? Just invite them to come and get saved. So we find that local evangelism has a church or the corporate body providing opportunities. What are the three opportunities? I put in there the scary, the sensible, and the serene. This is just an easy way for you to remember how we provide corporate opportunities for you. Who wants to venture a guess at what the scary one is? Neighborhood evangelism, door knocking. Now, how many have ever gone out, and this is not to shame you, this is just for edification for my purpose. How many of you across the breadth of your Christian life have ever gone one time out on a church's corporate door knocking exercise? Raise your hand. Hallelujah. Look at that, Everett. Quick, quick look. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm being ornery. It's Sunday night. I'm just being ornery. I did not do that on purpose, but it worked out. (laughs) Listen, why don't we like doing that? It's scary. I mean, the worst possible thing we can imagine is somebody comes to the door and tries to kill us for knocking on their door. How many doors have you knocked on? Thousands upon thousands. I remember back in Virginia when we knocked on thousands of doors together back then. I was telling someone the other day, I think it might have been Zach or somebody in the office, that the first year of the church, <clears throat> I tried to do gospel blitz and door knock 500 homes a week. For the first year. Jessica would laugh at me. I would wear out a pair of tennis shoes in about three weeks. In fact, a lot of people in town probably knew me as the pastor who wore tennis shoes because I'd go everywhere I went with my tennis shoes on, just knocking on doors in every neighborhood in this town. Why? Because, one, I had to learn the town. Number two, I had to had to reach out to the people in some capacity for a guy that moved in from northern virginia that didn't know anything about central kentucky other than i was raised here as a little kid i needed to come back and know the town but i can tell you this there are still times when i knock at a door and i'm thinking i wonder who's coming to the door i don't get scared but it's the scariest of the three so you'll hear tonight i am not laying upon you an obligation to do these things i'm simply saying these are your opportunities Your responsibility is to witness in your everyday life. That's the sole responsibility you have. We corporately create opportunities for the body writ large that can go out and accomplish the work of evangelization in that way. It's why we have the the Tuesday night visitation. Now, I get it. Life is busy. Work is long, and it's hard, and it's difficult often to come out. And so it's not something that you can do all the time. But you might be able to do it once a quarter. We, even on the staff, we don't have a requirement. I've had people ask me, we don't have a requirement that you got to be out there every single Tuesday night. Life would be, Jessica and I host people. We have a family coming over this Tuesday night. We are glad to be hospitable and host people as a pastor. I can't be there every Tuesday night. Should I feel guilty about that? The answer is, of course not. These are opportunities. Local evangelism, in a philosophical sense, is that you are responsible for witnessing everywhere you go. And we, as a corporate body, are to create opportunities. The first is door knocking. What do you think the sensible one is? Welcome wagon. wagon. You can just shout it out. Some of you, especially some of the teenagers, are very polite. They raise their hands. Welcome wagon. Now, how many have ever tried one of the welcome wagons? Now, they're less scary, I mean substantially less scary, than cold calling somebody. Huh. What you're doing in this is, hey, we're from the church and we're glad you moved here. We wanted to just give you this gift card to Culver's or McDonald's or Chick-fil-A, whatever it is at that time. We rotate. We wanted to give you a gift card to that to say, thanks for being a part of our community. We're glad you moved here. By the way, we're from the church, and there's information about the church. If you have any questions, you can call the office, or you can come and you can look for me personally at church. I hope to see you this Sunday. Do you know how many people have slammed the door in someone's face with that approach on the welcome wagon? Very few. <coughs> I can't tell if Edward was saying three or zero, or if he was giving me some symbol over there. But <laughs> if he did this. I hope it's zero, <coughs> right? Not many. It's not hard. I put that in the category of sensible ways to corporate, create corporate opportunity, church-wide opportunity. Uh, my favorite has been Beth and Frank. They joined the church two weeks ago, and that very day picked up a welcome wagon, went and made that visit, and the people were glad. They were like, hey, great, fantastic. You live right in my neighborhood. They did. They found one that was right down the street from them. Man, that is the best way to do it. We are working. We are endeavoring here at the church we have a, <clears throat> um, a program that we buy every year. It's called Bless Every Home. It's what gives us the welcome items. We've had the office staff go through and place all of our homes as lights. That's what they call them, lights, shining in the community. And we know where everyone's light is, whether it's in Jessamine County, in Fayette County, or in Scott County, in Clark County, and some in other counties. Wherever you live, there is a light that is there. And so now we can look at a map, and I was going to put it up here, but the lights are so spread out and so small, it's kind of hard to make sense of it. But the lights are there, and now we can see who a new mover is and who the closest light is. Boy, wouldn't that be a better way to do Welcome Wagon? Hey, how you doing? Listen, somebody new moved in your neighborhood. Would you take a gift to them from us? And that'd be a great way to do it. For years, I've wanted to have something called Neighborhood Captains. Where someone says, you know what, I'll take this neighborhood, no problem. Now, we're not there yet, but philosophically, it fits within this sensible approach to a corporate opportunity. You say, Pastor, aren't you just buying their way into church? I don't know, Peter here healed the man. He could have just said, hey, good luck, beggar man. I'm not healing you, but I'll give you Jesus. No, it's fine to be kind. Yeah, It's actually a good thing to show the kindness and love of Jesus Christ. The third one is the serene. Why would I label this third one? What is it, by the way? Blitz. What is it? Blitz. Gospel Blitz. The serene. Why do I call it that? Because it's both spiritual and physical exercise. All you're doing is walking. You really don't have to do any talking. You just take the door the door hanger, and you go up to somebody's house, and you hang the door hanger on the door. And if somebody happens to see you, you can go, Whoa, I'm church mouse. I don't like to talk. I'm quiet. Uh, just want to invite you to church. Have a great day. You can run away if you want. I don't care. But the point is it's an opportunity. So I put them there, the scariest, the sensible, and the serene. And the point is is that it would be great if you wanted to exercise yourself of the opportunities provided for you within the corporate body. Please understand, as I said, these are not obligations. They are opportunities. Your individual responsibility is to be salt and light everywhere you are. What we try to do corporately is create opportunity for you to grow your faith, to grow your finesse or your skill, and to grow our fellowship, our participation in doing the Great Commission together. Amen. A healthy church will always have opportunities for you to engage in sharing the gospel in an organized and structured way. It's not a healthy church if it doesn't care about souls. Our philosophy of evangelism encompasses local evangelism. But then, secondly, we find it encompasses or includes regional evangelism. What do I mean by regional evangelism? Anybody have an idea? Region. Acts chapter one and verse eight. You're going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. That's local, and Judea. Where was Judea? What was Judea? It was a region, correct? And so the city of Jerusalem was in that state of the Roman Empire, Idumea is what they called it, uh, of that region. And the Bible tells us over and again that churches were established throughout that whole region. We read in other places in the New Testament that there were churches of regions like Asia Minor. Here's what it says in Galatians chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. Paul an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Well, Galatia is Asia Minor. It's a region of Asia Minor. It tells me that there were churches, plural, that received this letter, singular, to each of them, or to all of them, as an individual local bodies. The other idea that we get from this idea of regional evangelism, is in Acts chapter 9 and verse 31, the Bible there says this, then Where is the then? After Paul, Saul, had been saved, and he had been brought into the church, and he had been uh, 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 discipled or taken under wing by Barnabas, and he had traveled back to Jerusalem. uh, We find it says, then, after he was saved and no longer breathing out threatenings, the Bible says, then had the churches rest throughout where? All Judea, and Galilee, and Samaria, and were edified, that means built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were We understand then from these passages that there is a need for regional reach of a church. How do churches reach their region? I mean, let's take our region and say it's the bluegrass. Now you kind of figured out 14 years ago why I named the church bluegrass. Not because I like the music. I have no problem necessarily with the music. But I didn't name it for that. I named it because we want to impact this entire region. But there's some parts of the bluegrass that are 45 minutes to an hour's drive away. How many people are going to come to church here from an hour away? How many tonight came from an hour away? One? Hallelujah. This is gail all the way out in Bath County. Why would somebody drive that far? She wants to be part of good the church. There are many others that do. But usually it's harder for them to be in association and fellowship here. The distance creates delays in service, we might say, or difficulties in service. So there's a lot of ways that you can skin the regional cat conundrum, and all of them are on the table, but I want to talk about them as part of our philosophy tonight. There's a good pastor of a wonderful church here in central Kentucky who not long ago set out a goal of starting 50 churches across Kentucky. That's a noble goal. That's a good thing. But it might have been too specific of a task. How many churches need to be started? Might be ten. Might be a thousand. I also know of a church in California that is a wonderful work with a great pastor. Yet some people drove two hours across Los Angeles County to attend that church. That church ran 6,000 members at its peak. That church has since begun to plant churches closer to people's homes in heavily populated areas of areas of Los Angeles, California. There are also churches in our area that decide that there's going to be one central church and a lot of satellite churches where they will do their own music thing and they'll have their own fellowship thing and then there will be a preacher who gets up and does his thing. Is that really a church? And the answer is it might be for that local group, but when it comes to the preaching of the word of God and worship, boy, that model breaks down real quick. There's no personalization in the worship. There's no wholeness, if you will, in the worship. There are a thousand different ideas that churches develop as to how they can reach their region for Christ. My goal this evening is not to mock what others do because I'm glad for their valiant efforts in trying. They should be commended for reaching the loss for Jesus Christ, however they go about doing that. But we have a philosophy of evangelism that includes regional evangelism. This came to light last summer when we were talking about developing and what we will do for a building. It dawned on me, and then it dawned on Brother Mike, and Brother Mike and I and others have since talked about this. What is our plan? We, at that time, had almost 10 families driving from Jessamine County. Is that sustainable for them to continue to drive 45 minutes to an hour to come to a Bible-preaching church? And the answer is, not for long, especially when somebody hosts an activity— on the north side of Scott County, and it turns into an hour and 25-minute drive. You start to understand the concept. The philosophy guides then what we do. What do we do with that? Well, there was earnest conversations about planting a church in Jessamine County. We came very close, and we are still, I think, very close in some sense, in some areas, to planting a church out of ours that would accomplish <laughs> bringing together 5, 10, to 12 families. You say, but pastor, that would hurt us as a body. Not if it grows a church and a work locally and regionally for that place. It wouldn't hurt us at all. Effectively, when you say that, you're being selfish. You're saying that God can't work through other people in a wonderful way, just like he's doing that here. And that he can't continue to sustain that here? I have a great Hebrew word I use a lot. What is it? Hogwash. Of course God can do all of those things. (laughs) So there's two things, two factors that dictate our regional work. That is this, letter A, from population. You should put these down because philosophically, this is what we believe. This is how we practice, and this is what will be discussed. When and if the time ever arises for us to do that. Where are all the families from our church coming from presently? Do you know? Let's say just tonight the people online can chime in through their... Chat window or whatever they've got, but for those that are in here, how many live in Scott County proper? Raise your hand real high, all right. Put your hands up. How many of you live in Fayette County? All right. How many live in Jessamine County? All right. And just for good measure, how many live in Bath County? Miss you There's four. That's right. The McCorkendales live out that way. There's four that live out there. Two families, four folks. So when you look at it, we realize that we are – if I showed you the map and I were to take a loop – I've talked about this in the office many, many different times. If I were to take a loop around just on the perimeter of where all of our families live, I would drive in the Commonwealth of Kentucky 214 miles. I feel sometimes like a circuit-riding preacher if I need to go to all those – I'd never have had a day where it's like, pastor, you need to come here. And the next day, pastor, you need to come here. Oh, The gas sponge is going to get real bad for the church if that happens. It's based on population. How far will families willingly drive to be part of a good Bible-preaching church? Probably pretty far to be part of it. We met two young ladies that were here visiting this morning. They live in Williamstown. They both work at the Ark. One is from Minnesota and one is from Texas. Two single ladies. And they said, yeah, we drive, we've been driving down here for church on Sunday mornings. That's easily 40 miles one way. I can't imagine the arts paying them that well or well enough that they can afford gas to drive all the way down here Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and then be involved in the forerunner's mission. It gets harder. So we have to start looking. So in other words, philosophically, we have to understand that even in the book of Acts, they didn't just keep the church at Jerusalem. God, in fact, brought persecution on the church when it decided to stay bigger than it ought to have been. I have a wonderful proof. If you read Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he says go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And if you read Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, there's great symmetry to it. Paul is breathing out threatenings in Acts 8 and verse 1, and by the time you get to verse 4, it says they went everywhere in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world preaching the word. In other words, God said, no, 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 I don't want you to just stay comfortable in this big, massive humanity that is uh, uh, accumulating just more and more people. A healthy church will always be a growing church. But our goal is not to be a church of 5,000 or 7,000 or 10,000 or 30,000. Our goal is to see other churches planted so that there can be local works done. That is part of our regional evangelism. Another question that we should ask within population is can that locale, that location, that population support a church by itself? Or should we underwrite that church? Can you imagine us doing that? Could you imagine us paying the salary of another preacher for a year or two or three or five until that church and that other little borough or or burg, probably 30 to 45 minutes from us, gets on their feet, gets started, so that that pastor and his wife can be wholly dedicated to the work of the ministry? Could you see us doing that? And the answer is yes, because the church that sent me to start Bluegrass did the same thing for me. I can't tell you how many times I've watched bivocational pastors burn out because they cannot— sustained not because of their lack of courage or their lack of, uh, uh, of fortitude but because of the actual workload of being bivocational it is daunting i am forever grateful for the church in virginia that said we know nothing about central kentucky and trust me they know nothing about central kentucky i was from there i love them dearly but they have no idea of the lives that we live there they live in the political Washington, D.C. sphere of government. That's not evil. There's a lot of good people in that church. But they don't understand life here. Very few of them ever worked in a factory or ever worked on a farm. Am I wrong, Edward? Am I wrong, Dad? They love us. And they paid for my first and half of my second year salary so that I could come here. They paid $30,000 for an annual salary to me so that Jessica and I could come here. And make a go of it. Make a go of it. They believed in the concept of regional evangelism. I do as well. When we have answered these questions of population, we move on to letter B in regional evangelism, and that is to plant. The church is a tender plant in the eyes of Almighty God. Carefully cultivated That's why the pastor or whomever it is that leads that place needs to be a man of faith and prayer. It's interesting when we think about planting a church, we never ask why we would plant another church or when. God answers those questions. He answers the why and he answers the when. Our stewardship takes over in the questions of who, how, and where. Who will plant another church out of our church? And the answer is a faithful, called man whom God separates to priests. Turn over to Acts chapter 13. In verse number 1, we find how Paul and Barnabas were separated, called out by God. Remember earlier with the deacon, I indicated that a deacon is called by the church and approved by God. The pastor is called by God and ultimately... Someday, whomever replaces me will be voted on by you that, yes, God's call is upon this man to occupy this office. Kyle's time in this position is done. However that may manifest itself, this is the exact same way that will happen. It also applies to our philosophy of evangelism on the regional level as well. Notice verse number one. It says, now there were in the church that were as at Antioch certain prophets and teachers... As Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the teacher, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they did what? Sent them away. This is exactly when the day comes for us to send out a person to plant a church within our region or even within our country, the United States. This is exactly how we will go through that process. We will recognize that God has called them, God has separated them, and our chief responsibility is to make sure that we effectively send them on their way to do the work of the ministry. God chooses men for his ministry who are able to discern and speak his truth from the Holy Spirit, we read in these verses. They are diligent masters of the truths in God's word, and they are those, or those are the ones, I should say, that God will choose and send away to start new churches. Now, you might be tempted to say this, but I think God should keep all the really good people here. I'm going to be very careful, and I'm going to ask this question. Not everybody probably would answer to the affirmative. I would think that because we're all assembled here and God called me to plant this church here, we would all at least say this. I'm glad God burdened Kyle to at least plant this church so that we could all be together here. Would we agree to that statement? Amen. Okay. But I could have easily stayed at Fairfax Baptist Temple in the position I was as the assistant to the pastor with a church of 1,200 and a staff of about 70 and stayed there. And Jessica and I served the rest of our time there because the best of that place need to stay here you understand the the terror or the trouble in that state? The church that I was sent out of in Fairfax, Virginia, where I grew up really and got saved and went into the ministry, has sent 90 workers out into full-time ministry through its years. Almost 50 years of ministry, over 50 years, 52 years of ministry now. 36 of those men have gone out to plant churches stateside. They are pastors, and a great many have gone to the foreign mission field. We actually support a good number of those who have gone to the foreign mission field. If you go out to our missions board and look up David Hasselblut, he's a missionary that grew up at Fairfax Baptist Temple. He could have stayed there and done a wonderful evangelistic work and grown that work in the ministry and made it into a church of 10,000 instead of 1,500. But God saw fit to call the best and the brightest out. By the way, that's gonna happen to us. There's gonna be men that grow up in this place and they're gonna be the best and the brightest. And God's gonna say, Yes. Just like he did to me one day. How I'd like you to do more. I remember the day we drove back from Hershey, Pennsylvania, on a on a couple's retreat, and I looked at Jessica and I said, I think God wants us to do more. She goes, What else can we do? You're working 70 hours a week, I'm teaching kindergarten to school. What else can you do? No, she didn't say it like that. <laughs> I said, what what else should we do? I said, I think God wants me to be a pastor. That was back in 2006. And she said, well, when I was a teenager and got saved, I told the Lord that if he would, I would marry a pastor. Now, she married me, not being a pastor. So the point is, God was working in both of our hearts. There's going to come a day where someone here, the Lord touches their shoulder and says, it's your turn to go. And here's where I'm burdening you to go. This is the work that I want you to do. Our responsibility is to take care of the how, which is the second question. The who is that God will raise them up. But that means yielded men to the calling of God. How will we plant the answer is the same way that we as a church were planted and have been built upon. Relationship, worship, discipleship, stewardship, and fellowship. Those five ships that the church has to sail on. Those have to be the same philosophical approach as to what we plant. They don't have to be a carbon copy of us, but they, biblically, they are called daughter churches. They are churches that have come out from amongst us. The product of a church is a bride wedded to the groom, Jesus Christ, and the product of any home, if God blesses, is that they produce offspring. That's what a church should do. There's regional evangelism. These are philosophical things. These aren't just heady and high minded These are practical things that we're driving at day by day in our work here. So our philosophy of (coughs) evangelism—excuse me, I left out the where question. The answer to the where question is wherever God makes it obvious. So our philosophy of evangelism encompasses local and regional evangelism, but then it deals number three with global evangelism. You can study this idea of global evangelism or worldwide evangelism in Acts chapters 13 through 27. Speaking of the sermon this morning, you want to make a great movie? Make a movie someday, especially if you're a young person and you're into this digital media and stuff and you're good at it. Make a really great movie about Acts chapter 27. I mean, there is intrigue. There is trust there's uh, uh, danger. There's there's life or death situations on the high seas. Some of you are like, Acts 27, I'm going to go look at it. Yeah, you should. That's my job as a pastor to make your minds inquire. What I consider the perfect way for a missionary to enter a city and a society and a wholly different culture is found in the story we will not take time for time's sake tonight. In Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. What you would find in that passage is the Apostle Paul is sent away and to Athens. He, for his safety, is sent there in uh, from uh, from the regions that he is at before Thessalonica, then at Berea. He is sent along. The troublemakers at Thessalonica continue to push him further south uh, on the peninsula or the, the area of Greece. But he comes to Athens. And when he comes to Athens, Paul comes in and begins to talk to them about their culture, but tells them about Jesus Christ. In verse number 16, we'll read a couple of verses here. It says, now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. That's a product of a good mission's mind. When he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, he saw the people for who they were. Therefore, disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons in the market daily with them that met with him. He was willing to talk to anybody he came in contact with. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what, was, what will this babbler say? Others some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. In other words, he kept the main thing the main thing. And they took him and brought him into Areopagus, saying, "May, May we know what this new doctrine, whereof thou speakest, is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, and we would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. By the way, most of the world's cultures want to hear the gospel message. It's something new to them. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said to you, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. Hey, there is one problem I find with your culture. You're too superstitious. You're going to go into their culture, and you're not trying to change their country or their culture. You're trying to change them, but you've got to point out the error in their thinking. That's what he does. For as I pass by—I'm going to switch to this one, Scott. sounds like we're running out of battery For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God, that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in the temples made with hands, neither is worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all men life and breath and all things. He goes on to preach the fullness of the gospel message. He closes, or at the end of it, he finds this. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at. He's saying, all of this knowledge of a creator, knowledge of a divine realm, knowledge of a being greater than you. He says, God looked at that ignorance, and he's kind of wincing at it. He's kind of, ugh, you're almost there. But now commandeth all men everywhere to do what? Repent. He taught the resurrection and repentance. The core essentials of the gospel that's what a missionary going into a foreign country into a different culture in a different society needs to do you will find that uh, if you read verses 31 through 34 some of them mocked him many of our missionaries are mocked and many of our missionaries are minimized in those cultures but some the Bible says clave to him they would not let him go because what they heard changed their life forever that is the work of a missionary in global evangelism. There are two key elements in our philosophy of world evangelism. Then, First, faith is required. Faith is required for families to go to the foreign field. Would to God that he would call someone from our church. That would be a rich blessing to us to see God send someone to a region of the world where they can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we can then partner with them. For those who go from our midst or whom God brings in for us to support, here are four simple traits, and I put them in your notes as well, that a missionary ought to have as their makeup. We look for these things when someone comes here to be a missionary. Eagerness. Pam, as the mission secretary, will field probably throughout the year dozens, if not several dozens, of emails from missionaries that want us to support them in their evangelistic effort, church planting, discipleship work overseas. But if someone writes to us and says, we've been on deputation for nine years, Pam knows that's a non-starter to send on the pastor. Why? They're not meeting what our philosophy is, which is an eagerness to get there and do the work of the ministry. The next one is energy. Do they actually have sustained energy once they get on the field? One of the tragic stories I've heard is a friend of mine was a pastor in Tennessee. And people from his church had gone around and become missionaries. And they were in the country of Tanzania. And they literally, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, were sitting behind walls around their pool, living off mission support from the United States. They had no desire or energy to go out and do any of the missions work. that they had told everybody they would. that pastor, to his credit and commendably, got on an airplane as soon as he heard it floated tanzania and on a sunday morning knocked on the door of that missionary family and they were aghast and good for that pastor he immediately or promptly told them to come home they've got to have energy they don't necessarily have to see not a new congress this week that's not what we're looking for but they've got to have energy the empowering of the holy spirit of god the next one is education know what you're going to know what you're in for And the fourth one is efficiency. Don't waste things. Be efficient in your work. Once a supportable servant or family is found, faith then is required for the church to engage. We look for and listen to those who are seeking to reach the world for Jesus Christ. And when we find a family or families, we try to engage in supporting their work. Once that family is found and the church engages, then it's for the church to choose to support them. God gives each of us income, and we give back to him the tithe and the offering. Some argue the tithe is not a New Testament principle, and I would marginally agree with that. But I would say this, the principle of the New Testament is giving sacrificially. Are you giving that way? If not, then stick to the tithe, at least. That would definitely include giving at least a tenth. Our missions giving is not part of our general fund giving, as many Southern Baptist churches choose to make it. We make it a grace-giving, a faith-promise-giving, above what we give as our tithe to the church, locally. We give above the general fund to the world or global evangelistic efforts that we engage in. The church family, by the way, has faithfully given year after year to the work of spreading the gospel. And we are able to take on new families in new or needed countries because of your increase and because of new families coming to the church are introduced to this philosophy so faith is required but secondly fiscally we must be fiscally responsible now that may not be the first thing you think of when you think of a philosophy of evangelism but we must be fiscally responsible in the world evangelistic efforts we must responsible be responsible in that we cannot support every qualified person we would run out of your money very quickly Now, some would say, well, really, you just got to operate in faith. Those people usually go out of business very quickly as a church and do no good for God. Stewardship is always a Bible principle. We have chosen to build a world evangelism policy, that means our missions policy, that allows for new families but also strengthens existing faithful families. We bring a a missionary family on for support at $125 a month. That's $1,500 a year. After five years, we increase them to $200 a month, that's $2,400 a year. Then finally, after 10 years, to $275 a month, that's $3,300 a year. We do this because God always rewards faithfulness, and we should follow his example. One last thing we must consider in our philosophy is national pastors. There are times when foreign missionaries will train and send out pastors to plant churches in their country. And their national churches can't afford to support that man to go undistracted and be serving in the ministering of the word of God. So what we've done is let our missionary families know, look, if you have a national pastor, if they only need $500 a month to go start a church, whereas an American missionary needs $5,000, but that national in that country only needs $500. Man, let us know. We have three missionaries, two missionaries, two, thank you. She put up a two. I thought we had three. We talked about a third, but we have two missionaries on the foreign field where we send support to a national who's under them. That's the Paul and Timothy principle. Philosophically, we know what we're doing and we know why we're doing it. While we must be responsible fiscally, missionaries must be responsive intentionally. We are prayerfully and financially supporting their work and, yes, their lifestyle to some degree. And some missionaries may think that they are an island in and to themselves. They are not. They are collaborators with us. They are partners with us. An unresponsive missionary on the foreign field is a dangerous thing. No, they are not, in case any of them are watching, they are not at our beck and call. But they are our partners, and we expect with our prayer partners who write to them that at least we'll get a prayer update letter, and occasionally there will be some interaction. I understand our missionaries have 100 to 150 churches that support them, and it gets very hard to keep up with all of them. But they ought to be at least able to be responsive and say, thank you for caring. Thank you for praying. Here's two or three quick requests that were in our prayer letter. Did you see them? That's the problem. Sometimes we don't read them. So two last things here. We must be faithful in giving while they must be faithful in going. It is a sad thing, but philosophically, we must say what happens when a missionary doesn't do their task. We have had to suspend missionary support for seasons and for one, for good. Others have come off the field and told us that they no longer need our support. And in those cases, because of their honesty, what we always do philosophically is we will support them through the end of that calendar year because they have to transition back from the field. We don't always know the reason. Obviously, if it was for sin or they were taken in sin, we didn't. We had a missionary years and years ago that they had to leave the field because of sin on the part of the man's part. And what we chose to do as a church is we continued with the monthly support for the wife only. We made sure there was a designated account and we sent the money only to the wife. She wasn't at fault for the sin. And so our responsibility always is to do good to the household of faith. There's philosophy behind everything we do here, including what we do in our missions work. And so while we have had to suspend missionaries before, thank goodness it's not often. It would be a terrible thing if we had to do it over and over and over again. You have to look at this as a partnership. And that's what it is on the global scale. I'm thankful for our philosophy, whether it's local, regional, or global, that we have and practice here at Bluegrass Baptist Church. So we could say this in closing then tonight, the philosophy of evangelism at Bluegrass can be summarized this way. We believe our commission to evangelize involves us locally through individual responsibility and corporate opportunities, regionally, finding population pockets, then planting a New Testament church, and globally partnering in faith with faithful servants in a fiscally responsible way. That is our philosophy. It sounds a little bit verbose, a little wordy perhaps, but that covers the gamut of all things evangelistic. There is no more exciting thing, by the way, than to partner in evangelism with the Lord, with each other, and with other faithful servants whom God brings along our I'm going to close in prayer and then just stay seated. We'll be very brief. We need to take a vote on a missionary family that we're taking on for support this evening. Father, thank you for the night that we had.